When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Two, and we are recording for a second time. Mr. Brandon Weikert and his book, as you can see over his right shoulder or left shoulder, if it's mirrored, whatever. The book, the only book in the screen, Winning Space. Uh, it's on Kindle. It's I don't believe it's on Audible, but as I tell everyone with Kindle, you can get your Kindle or really any, at least as well as as far as I'm concerned. If you get it on Kindle, you can get your uh, your device to read it to you. It's a little. It's a little janky. You got to go in and have it read the screen. You can't really use your phone otherwise because if you start using other stuff, it will start reading the other stuff. Not important. I've gone on to that before in the podcast. The point is, is you can still use it as an audiobook, as I did. I burned through it. I think I burned through it in like a, a maybe two days, maybe one day. I don't remember. That's great. That's great. Terrifying. Wildly interesting. It's it's. I mean, it is the next frontier. It's like oh, we're. You know, we're pushing through the net. I can only imagine it's the same sort of awe you get in World War One when you realize it's not just horses anymore, but there are also biplanes. It's that right. awe mixed with the terror of like Sputnik. And you're like, right. we can fly. So can they. <laughs> like, right. so, but That's right. Mr. Weikert, for anybody that just didn't listen to us last week, please introduce yourselves. Tell them a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks again for having me, or second time in a week. And uh, yeah, so basically my background, I'm a geopolitical and a geotechnology analyst. Uh, I My area of real interest was space policy, specifically national security space policy. But I have a wider scope than that. My academic background, I was a Russia analyst. I've been a Middle East analyst. I've done, I do China a lot. Uh, and I previously worked on Capitol Hill as a congressional staffer. Um, and I have a master's in statecraft and national security affairs from the Institute of World Politics in Washington, D.C. I'm an associate member of uh, New College at Oxford University, where I studied British political history, specifically imperial decline from 1947 to 1997. Uh, and uh, I write pretty consistently for the Asia Times. I'm a contributor there. I'm a contributing editor at American Greatness. I'm a contributor at the Washington Times. Uh, I've been featured in the BBC, CBS, um, all over the place. Apparently, I'm very popular in Vietnam as well. So, Take it. Uh, you know, yeah, exactly. But that's that's me in a nutshell. I've I've uh, every once in a while I'll goof around on like Spotify and I look at where the you know where my listens come from, and it's, it's mm-hmm. like overwhelmingly the United States. You know, it's like like new york yeah. la which is just yeah. statistically sure then it's like canada it's like okay and then it's like uk australia yeah right sure and then I, but then like kind of thrown in the mix it'll be like zaire and i'll be yeah. like huh yeah. shout out yeah. you know you're like all yeah. right we'll take yeah. it we'll take it yeah. um so and so for all future listeners today is sunday march 27th 2022 um you did and i think our first email correspondence you were you were going to brief the Air Force, I think, on the twenty yeah. first. Okay, is there anything you can talk about with that, or is that is that can we not touch that? Uh, just basically, I was talking about uh, Russia and Ukraine, uh, uh, and sort of how do we restore deterrence? Uh, what role specifically is emerging new technology playing? 
Um, there's a myth that Russia is sort of this backward country, and certainly it's not as advanced as the United States or even China anymore, but in very specific areas, they are pretty advanced and competitive. And so I was assessing for them. They like to bring in occasionally outside consultants like myself. They call subject matter experts. SME uh, is the shorthand. And so I was one of a dozen SMEs they brought in for this conference in Washington. And I spoke about uh, specifically Russia's space capabilities, but also sort of Vladimir Putin. What what is he trying to accomplish in Ukraine? And um, you know, one of my big takeaways, and I've written about this in my articles at Asia Times, is that deterrence, as we have, you know, relied on since the Cold War, which is basically, you know, we won't go to nuclear world war because we can blow them up and they can blow us up. And so that creates a balance of terror. And then we don't go beyond that. Uh, what I've been saying to the Pentagon is that under Vladimir Putin, and I think we talked about this a little bit last time, but under Vladimir Putin, um, deterrence is dead. We have asymmetrical new technologies like hypersonic missiles that Russia actually is pioneering, cyber capabilities in which there are no rules in that domain, space capabilities in which if you can strike out first against those satellites that we rely on, then you will have the initiative and you will be able to possibly affect a real victory for your forces on Earth by defeating America in space, which is a lot easier to do um, than it is on Earth. Um, and so... I basically sort of outlined what Putin's objectives are, uh, what his frame of mind, I think, I'm not a psychiatrist, but but his ideological standing on things and sort of where he's coming from and how America may not understand that since deterrence is dead and since Mr. Putin is all in on Ukraine, um, you know, there's a chance, and I know we talked about this last time, but there's a chance that this thing could rapidly escalate into a world war, possibly a nuclear world war, uh, and we're not paying attention to that. And here's what we should be doing. And, and I, I outlined my solutions. I won't get into that here, uh, but I outlined my solutions. Uh, and the Air Force was was amenable to most of them. I don't know if they're going to ever listen. Uh, you know, tends to be an issue with throughput with them where they'll listen to me, and then you wait for the actual adoption of a policy that you help to promote and it doesn't happen. And so you just go, well, okay, I'll collect my paycheck, I guess. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's sort of how things go. It's like, uh, it's like when you give somebody advice on something, when people, right. when somebody's like, Tommy, how do I start a podcast? I'm like, I'm like, just start small. I'm like, consistency is the most important thing. Talk to your friends. They might be worthless conversations in a year. You'll be surprised when you look back and they're like, awesome. Right. And then six months later, I'm like, where are you on this? They're still on episode one. And I'm like, well, all right. Well, you know, and I don't even do it for a paycheck. But you talked about three things in the book that I think actually there's kind of like a meta theme. You know, you pinpoint the most important thing and it's space. And if you can take out space, everything else kind of cascades right, down exactly. from that. So in that same sense, in the whole book, I'm trying to find what is the meta theme. And one, and I love the quote, and it's decline is a choice. Right. And that I think speaks to me on like a more personal level than anything right i, I just love that i love that. so many people and i'm not going to get into this because i'll start going on a rant but just the entire idea of like the tail between their legs america's best days are behind us that nothing will boil my blood more than that but because right. we're not doing a motivational video we're talking about space i'll leave that for another time but decline right. is a choice be it personally or be it at the nation state level um number two is how we didn't ever focus well you could you could argue obviously both sides that we did with world war ii fdr war right. powers act which kind of spun into the military industrial complex but what you point out with china is 
We never, I think it could also be argued well that we never focused on necessarily building the military. We had this, this knockdown, drag them out juggernaut of an economy. Mm-hmm. And the military was able to come out of that. You know, right. if you just work hard in all aspects of life, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get into podcasting or, uh, you know, subject matter expert or whatever. You'll tend to just, you're going to conquer in what you do. If you just put your mind to it and it will spin out into other things, right? You know, Joe Rogan, it's not just that he's the best podcast. You look at the guys, just how he goes about his life. I mean, there's a dude that goes to the gym at 5am every day. Like right. it spins out into other things, right? It just so happens to be the podcast, be it comedy, be it fear factor, whatever. So those kind of two things decline as a choice and focusing on the economy, which will grow the military. And I know that's a right. very generalized kind of conclusion. And also I think the most important one is that space literally and metaphorically is the apex. If you can, you cannot i mean it is it's air superiority it's the high ground it is it is relatively it is more of a high ground comparison to like air force than air force is to the earth it truly is i mean it is the high ground and you don't necessarily need to take on the united states tank for tank right plane for plane missile for missile if you can you know if you can just throw some salt in the eye or the the command and control centers up there, you really can have a cascading effect, and it very quickly becomes a destabilized world. Where, like you said, the turn is even more dead, and all of a sudden, right. we you have these powers that are going, oh, the you know the the king lion's limping. Now right. it's time to rip its throat out. And to anyone that right. thinks they wouldn't do that, that's all of human history is right. waiting for that. Right. Any one of those three that maybe sparks your interest more than the others right now, decline, economy, or space down? Well, they all they all relate. And so, you know, we can just quickly hit, you know, um, decline is a choice, right? I mean, I think I said this last week to you. I know I said this to the head of the Air Force Research Lab when she was asking about this last week. Um, you know, we have all the tools that we need to be, to remain the dominant superpower, the problem is we increasingly have uh, practitioners uh, who will not use those tools properly, who don't know how to use them, who don't even realize we have those tools anymore. Uh, and by the time they recognize that we have those tools, they're they're not able to to change things anymore because that moment has passed. And so, um, you know, decline is a choice, and we not just among our policymakers because really. Let's face it, our policymakers, yes, they're an elite. Yes, they're detached more than they've ever been from the common person. But ultimately, still, they go off of votes. And so if our elite are not doing the things that they used to do, the things that we used to take for granted, like dominating the next you know, level of technology advancement, it's likely because the people who voted for them uh, are not clued in to what they should be clued into. And so it's not just a failure of the elite. That's an easy cop out. It's a, it's a societal failure. So what are we, you know, why are we choosing leaders the way we are? You know, what, what is going on in the general public's mind when they support the leaders they do, who let's face it, those leaders are going to implement policies that are going to hurt and harm America in the long run. Uh, And so this is one of the reasons why we consistently have had leaders who just don't care about space. They don't get it. 
Um, they don't want to get it. And they figure, well, the American people aren't going to go along with that anyway, because they'd rather spend that money on healthcare as if that's the option. It's, you know, like it's healthcare versus space. Well, no, that's, there's separate issues. Um, and so, you know, th- this is where we're at and this is how, and I can't tell you how many conversations working in government from both parties I've had this conversation. I think I might've said this to you last time, but in the new version, uh, the paper pack version of Winning Space that's going to be coming out soon, there's a new intro. And I, I, I didn't name names in the first edition because this, this guy was still in office. And, and as a former staffer, you, you really try not to talk about Fight Club, right? You know, that's the first rule. Either party, you just don't do it. But now that this guy's out, I can talk about it. So uh, my first week on the Hill, I was, you know, nobody. Uh, and my boss, who is representing a Florida district, he's a Republican, he said, Brandon, I want you to go down to this meeting. It's with a group of NASA and former Air Force people. This is during 2013 shutdown time. This is during the sequestration. This is during the big defense budget battle with Obama. He said, go down there. I want you to meet these guys on my behalf, take notes, and then brief me after. I said, okay. So I go down to Rayburn, the basement. And uh, I realized quickly that this is uh, all the people that are there in terms of staff. These are all the lowest people on the totem pole. And so automatically I know, okay, this is not a priority, this meeting. This is pro forma. I'm sitting there listening to these former NASA experts and these Air Force, uh, retired Air Force space people uh, going on about how vulnerable the satellites we rely on, are, first of all, how we rely on them and how you know we can't survive without them and how if we keep cutting the budgeting for these programs, it's, it's going to kill us because it's going to make those satellites extremely tempting targets, uh, a target-rich environment for the Russians, Chinese, Iranians, and North Koreans. And as I'm sitting there, I'm looking around going, there's no elected people here. They're, these are all very low-level staffers like myself. You know, I feel like we are catching the Japanese aircraft carriers mid course to Hawaii and no one's alerting the people who could do something about that. And finally, one guy, an elected leader, walks in and his name was Elliot Engel. He was a representative from New York, Democrat. And he came into the back of the room where I was standing and he had a very, after a few minutes of these people talking, he had a very apoplectic look. And I thought, okay, this guy, he gets it. I don't, I know he's a Democrat. He's on the other side, but he seems to be engaged. This is a good thing. We need to, this is something I'm, I'm pretty excited about. Well, I realize he's not actually listening to them. He's trying to figure out where the coffee is because at these events, you get free food and coffee. And he realized there's a Keurig machine in the back. So then he walks over and he's fiddling around with the Keurig and he's getting angrier and angrier, making more and more noise and distracting the people in their presentation up front. So finally, I pivot and go up to him and go, I go, Representative Angle, is there something I can help you with? And he starts to tell me about how he can never figure out these darn or damn uh, uh, Keurig machines. Uh, and how these machines are too aspirational. He doesn't understand why we just can't make coffee the old-fashioned way, blah, blah, blah. So I made him a cup of coffee, and he took it, and then he proceeded to leave without saying another word. And as he's walking out, I'm thinking, this is a guy, and he represents other, or he, he sort of is like all the other representatives from either party, who's old, doesn't understand technology, and yet he is charged with making critical decisions on the future of America's technology policy and our national security policy. There's a problem here. And so that was sort of the genesis of my interest in this, in this topic. Uh, and I continued on with that until today. This is you know, 12 years ago. 
15, 14 years ago. Um, and so I've continued on with that. And so in my assessment, I have found that decline is a choice. Our leaders, whether they realize it or not, are choosing decline. Uh, and then it translates into this sort of uh, autopilot mentality that our leaders have, where they say, hey, America's always been strong. We're separated from the rest of the world. You know, ultimately, yeah, Russia and China are problems, but we've got the best star-spangled economy in the world. Well, until you look at the actual economy and you go, yeah, we're strong and we certainly can continue to be strong if we choose to be. And yet, if you look at the policies that we've enacted, both the the uh, fiscal and the monetary policies we've enacted for the last 20 years, you, you kind of realize we've really damaged our economy. A lot of our, our economy has ha- suffered through self-inflicted wounds. And now you hear talk about China and Russia and Central Asia aligning with India to create an alternative currency to the dollar. You hear Saudi Arabia trying to trade in the renminbi or the yuan, the Chinese currency, over the U.S. dollar or offering an alternative. And, and you start looking at how we've printed money so much and, and, and we've devalued the currency. You look at the inflationary crisis we're going through. You look at you know, all the debt, all of that, and you go, well, yeah, we have a strong economy. And, and yeah, we are the currency of last resort, but for how long? And you realize we lost our AAA rating 10 years ago. We uh, realize that you know we've really created a lot of problems economically for ourselves with really bad political policies. Um, and how long can we remain a strong economy? And you look at the regulations that we've created and you look at really all the things we've done and you go, okay, we have the capability to be the strongest and best economy. We are certainly the most entrepreneurial people if left to our own devices. Um, and yet, um, the IMF, which is by no means a, an, you know, an anti-American entity, the international monetary fund says, Hey, uh, and if trends persist by 2027, China will be the number one GDP economy in the world, not, not America. Or you look at the Heritage Foundation, again, by no means a pro-China entity. The Heritage Foundation does the Economic Freedom Index every year. And for the last 20 years or the last 18 years, the number one until this last year because of what's going on there, um, for a majority of the last 20 years, the number one freest economy in the world according to capitalist standards, has been Hong Kong, China, not not the United States. Um, in fact, the United States has been ranked somewhere between number 15 and number 17 most of that time. We've moved up under Trump, we moved up. Um, but you look at those things and you go, well, how the heck can we be a strong economy if these factors are at play and they're getting worse? Uh, and so General Mattis, when he was at U.S. CENTCOM under Obama, during the um, the bail during the uh, the recession or the fallout from the recession, he apparently had a meeting with uh, Mr. Obama when Obama was president, and he said, "Look, um, you know, our military strength only exists because we have a dynamic, growing, and strong economy. And so, if we don't keep that going, our military strength will eventually collapse as well as the economy. And so that that is still true today. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, we have a strong economy. It's getting weaker, in my opinion." In the long term, I don't believe we're going to be the number one economy for long if we keep at the policies that we're going, if we keep with these declinist choices we're making, manage decline. Uh, And then the last part of losing the high ground. So basically conflict, physical combat, in my opinion, is migrating. It's migrating out of the traditional strategic domains of land, sea, and air, and migrating to the non-physical domain of cyber, but also to the physical otherworldly domain of space. Uh, And so 
we, for the last 30 years, because we had become such a dominant player in space, we assumed there were no more threats to us. And in fact, if you go back to the 90s and you look at what was being said at the time and you listen to what people were saying in Washington, D.C. and throughout the world, the two takeaways are that, A, with the Soviet Union gone, Russia is basically a non-entity. doesn't matter. And B, at the time, and Bill Gertz writes about this in his columns at the Washington Times and the Washington Free Beacon. He's written about this in his books, the last few books he's written, how he had a meeting with um, the, the, the lead China person at the Pentagon for the DIA um, uh, during 1993. And basically, he asked this expert, OK, now that the Soviet Union is gone, shouldn't we be focusing on the Chinese Communist Party? And this military guy who was a colonel at the time said, why the hell would we be focusing on China? They're our friend. They helped us beat the Soviets. And so that was the <laughs> mentality. And so we've had this mentality among defense circles that Russia's a non-factor. Boy, were we wrong about that. Uh, and China's a friend. Wrong again. And, uh, you know, we can we can deal uh, pretty easily with nuclear rogue regimes or regimes that were nuclearizing like Iraq supposedly, like Libya, uh, you know, like Syria. And look at how that's gone, right? And it hasn't gone very well. And so we make these assumptions that the, there are no real threats Amer to America strategically, so we can rely on satellites to basically do everything for us, to allow for modern civilization in America to, to survive and thrive. And yet we do very little to ensure that those satellites themselves can survive an attack and cannot be disrupted so badly that our entire civilization shuts down in about a blink of an eye. We haven't done that. We haven't made those systems survivable. And our enemies know that. And for the last 12 years, China and Russia in particular, but also North Korea and Iran, have been assiduously working on building out counter space capabilities, which are designed during uh, the event of a crisis to blind and knock out and destabilize the American position in space. And in so doing, rendering American forces on land, at sea, in the air, in cyberspace, deaf, dumb, and blind, which then allows conceivably for those enemy forces to have a window to defeat the American military in a conventional struggle, which they very well may, because our forces account for, I think, 1% of our population is under arms. Uh, they're forward deployed. We're an expeditionary force. We need to move lots of men and metal away from North America to various combat zones all around the world. We need perfect precision, pinpoint timing for that, that only satellites provide, uh, you know, then to sustain those forces with surveillance and sort of technological, uh, what's known as force multipliers against larger forces. We need space for that. It's essential if we don't have it. Our whole kind of military doctrine, the interoperable, uh, uh, you know, joint military uh, that we rely on to fight and win wars, they're no longer together. We're isolated. We're divided. Uh, we could be split apart and conquered by larger, uh, more conventional forces like China or Russia. And that's that's what happens if we lose that high ground. That's certainly what. Beijing and Moscow want to see happen. Uh, and they're working on that. And I have a feeling that at, at this rate, particularly Moscow right now with what's going on in Ukraine, um, very well may try something if they can't uh, win a fight more conventionally, like Moscow is not able to win right now in Ukraine. So they might start getting desperate, not just looking at escalating in the nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons realm, or not just in cyber, 
but going after our satellites to debilitate NATO's ability to uh, protect and help the Ukrainians in this ongoing war. Yeah, that was brilliant, by the way. Um, Thank you. I'm, I'm, my throat's dry listening to that. <laughs> but <clears throat> um, when you look at something like why, why why go against China? China helped us defeat Russia. That yeah, that's as uh, that's as absurd as going. Why are we why are we posturing against Stalin? He just helped us take out old old right. boy Hitler. Sure, right. he did, and that was yesterday, and now it's today. And you know, being the I have to be an optimist because I'll go crazy if I don't. I do look at something like 1945, right? I mean you know glory to the united states right ve day vj day we did it i mean it was only one was sputnik 57 yeah so that was 12 years later where right. i can only imagine and again this is me being the optimist to you being the realist um i can only imagine that this discussion or a form of this discussion was being had by people going hey oh, we were was. great we were great 12 years ago we did it no doubt about it you know the boys went over there and served and the women worked in the factories and we did the thing it's been 12 years now. We've been sitting on our butts, drinking Coke, watching the Yankees, whatever the thing was at the time. And, uh, you know, Eisenhower wrote it to the White House and we were great. But now we're resting on our laurels because they just right. shot Sputnik. And although Sputnik isn't important, it's just beeping. What it does equate to is they can now launch something into orbit. They don't need yeah. their bombers to come over here. They that's can right. launch it from orbit and they can nuke our cities, right. which that's right. you kind of. And that's why I said before we start recording to you was. I don't always view that as a bad thing. I think a kick in the pants is right. sometimes the, it's like what Hunter S. Thompson said about fear. It's like fear is a wild animal. Don't just kill it at first sight. It's like right. try to capture it and try to get it to pull your chariot. Just always keep a 12 gauge trained on. It. So if it turns right. on you and that's kind of how I view this is like it is where we are. It sucks, but it's where we are. So how can we move forward from here? And Obviously, after 45, we had brought back, you know, the paperclip scientists, which I mean, imagine if we hadn't. And then we had the Sputnik moment 12 years later. But I also I don't know if you've read the book Raven Rock by Garrett Graff. It's oh, one yeah. Of, uh, yeah. I've interviewed uh, Mr. Graff, I think, twice. That's one awesome. of my favorite books. I've listened to that so many times. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I look at I look at the change in just doctrine, how quickly it went from we need to be able to take on Soviet tank columns to right. And then you have Truman to Eisenhower going, we just need a couple tactical nukes. And then we can take, and it's like, oh, cool. And so it shifts everything. We don't need these masses of armies. We can just think, hit them here, hit them there. Mm-hmm. And then we have kind of a Sputnik moment again in 49 with Valenti Beria kind of accelerating the, the Russian nuke, the Soviet nuke. And then Courtesy we have it, of the Rosenbergs. Uh-huh, and so yeah. Traitors. Ethel, yeah, and, and, yeah. And Klaus yeah. Fuchs. Yeah, Klaus uh-huh. Fuchs, that, that, mm-hmm. that Fuchin guy. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but yeah. and then you look at, but we but we shifted. It was terrifying. And we realized they could come here and it wasn't going to be waves of bombers. You know, th- then they used to think it was going to be seven hours for them to get here. If they got a nuke, okay, that's bad. We have seven hours, and then Sputnik happened. Right. And it was like, okay, now we have this bunker that it's kind of a makeshift bunker for FDR that was built for FDR. It's mm-hmm. under the White House. And then, you know, it's a gen one bunker. Yeah, it's got like a chemical toilet, it's got some like food and water. Sure. Very quickly, Eisenhower was like. Washington, D.C., he was like, that centralization in the terrible irony was like the Pentagon was like just finished. And it was like, right. hey, 
got to break it apart. We got to be decentralized. How can right. we do it? At the very least, we got to go underground. The EMP shielding. We got to have uh, like secondary and tertiary governments, continuity right. of government, continuity of constitution, continuity of democracy. We got to have right. this lean, mean fighting machine. Eisenhower appointed all the czars that would take over. Right. UPS would, or not UPS, USPS would deliver like vaccinations and they would also take, take out the dead bodies from neighborhoods so it wouldn't rot. Right. Terrifying. But, mm-hmm. and it took time and it took a, a Herculean effort and one of my favorite things that led to NORAD and it was on a wartime footing. They were like, we need this thing now. Right. And we did it. And I can only imagine that there were a bunch of World War II vets sitting around in 1940 or 57 looking at a bunch of kids that were going to become hippies and going, they have no idea what price of blood and treasure we've spent. But right. they did step up. Not all of them. Sure, some became hippies. But a lot did stand up and rise to the occasion. You know, Curtis LeMay, Strategic Air Command, we've got to... Right. He went to base to base to base and just, right. just tightened it down. Just got to get it lean, mean. And we often have, at least I know I do, we often have this very simple, concise view of the past because it's it's in the past. We go, that's the day the war ended. And then mm-hmm. that's the day the, the Cold War started. And then JFK died. And there's Woodstock. But it's this dynamic flowing thing that often doesn't coagulate into a defined moment in history much later so i am being the optimist by being the pessimist and that i bet there's a lot of guys sitting around going eisenhower screwing us over why is he not jump starting this jfk screwing us over nixon screwing us over lbj is not doing the job but w- when we look back we can see where they did rise to the occasion now that does right. not mean that we are by default going to rise to the occasion we could very well fall you can't you know, Tom Brady can't go into the next season and go, I've got all these rings. I'm going to win again. No, 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 no. Right. You won because you had the mindset of I have zero rings. Right. So my optimism comes from, I think we will, I think we, I think we can, I'll say that. I think we can rise to the occasion. And right now we have Russia using the, the, the Kinzhal hypersonic missile in the United States. The leading headlines are, the Supreme Court justice who was chosen for her skin right. color and her genitalia doesn't know the definition of a woman. Right. And as stupid as that, as that is, we have a bunch of people who are even engaging it. Regardless right. of whether they you know, are upset, don't even engage it. They should be talking. How come winning space, plug for the book, right. how come winning space isn't trending? I, I don't care yeah. about... Cont- yeah. Good for her. God bless. I don't care. What are we doing about the coming war in space? The 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 propagation of take out one satellite and you create this death field or it's that that's that asymmetric they don't need a space force all they need is those little things to go up there and just just nudge them just blind them right laser pointer that's what's going on right now but i'd like to maybe look back and go in 1957 there were probably some guys that we're looking around they're going everyone's obsessed with mickey mantle but the russians or the soviets just got sputnik there were Yes. And so that's what kind of gives me hope is that it wasn't just we're America, we're going to do it. No, there were a bunch of guys that were like, yeah, the war's over. Yeah. You picking well, up and, what I'm putting down? Yeah. And the, the problem is, is that if you look at the polling back in 57, I got into this a little bit in the book, the, the chapter entitled The Case for Space. Um, there was across the board a response to the Sputnik launch on the part of the American voter that was, we don't mm-hmm. like this. 
Yeah. Today, we have suffered through several Sputnik moments, and the average American is completely clueless about it. Um, we've suffered through multiple Russian co-orbital weapons tests in which they, they have put, talked about this a little bit before, which they have put these small satellites into orbit. They say they're repair drones for their communication satellite. And then what turns out is, right, they're dual use. They can also tailgate our larger systems and can basically latch on with grappling arms and push them out of their orbits or destroy them physically, uh, which would basically render those systems inoperable. And we can't then, you know, for instance, use the multi-user objective system MUOS for the Navy to coordinate a naval response to, say, a Chinese attack on Taiwan, or we can't use the wideband global SATCOM uh, to coordinate an effective resistance to Russian military aggression in Ukraine or beyond in the Baltics. Um, And so the Russians and the Chinese, the most recently the Chinese did this in November with Xijiang 21, um, these systems have actually been deployed and nothing has been said. We have, or nothing has really been, nobody seems to care. Um, The response on our part, therefore, at the government level has been muted relatively. Um, We've had China and Russia both, and now North Korea, testing openly active, advanced hypersonic missile systems repeatedly. In fact, Russia, as you noted, used them in combat last weekend. Uh, And the most we did in the West was say, well, it's not really a hypersonic missile. And well, it's not that impressive. You know, it's like, dude, like we don't have it. The Russians do. And, you know, you can poo poo it all you want until that thing's screaming at you and your friends, you know, in in Ukraine or in Poland. Uh, And so there's that. And so we've also had multiple Sputnik moments with China in quantum computing. Right. Quantum computing is the next computer frontier. And China is at the very least keeping up with us in this critical domain. They have quantum internet, rudimentary, but they have it. They have quantum computing, rudimentary, but they have it. And they're throwing a lot of money into it, much more so coupled with a real centralized strategy for dominating this new industry, much more so than the Americans have. There's still sort of this dis, this discombobulated or disconnected, you know, private sector's doing one thing with Google, and then the US government's talking about doing something. Like, we need to get back to the way it was in the Cold War, where we would coordinate these things between the pi- public and private sector, and we're not. Whereas in China, they are. Russia's also doing this with a handful of things. And so we've had a series, in my opinion, of Sputnik moments in the last decade and the society just hasn't either been privy to it or they haven't really cared uh, to rock the boat the way that our grandparents, and in some cases parents, uh, were willing to do with Sputnik. And so that's what concerns me. And that's why one of the reasons I wrote the book is to try my best to put it in the layman's terms, which whether I did or not, who knows, um, but to try to explain to ordinary readers that, hey, you know, we are not only in a new space race that could devolve into a space war, we're actually losing. And and we're losing bigly, as the former president would say. And the former president, Trump, actually was the only politician in my lifetime from either party who took it seriously and actually tried to do something, tried to not just create space force, which was necessary, but tried also to coordinate then his administration's response with that of the private sector with the tech companies. And they could never seem to quite get on board with each other, partly because they didn't like Trump, but also partly because a lot of these companies were in bed with China and didn't want to rock that boat and risk losing access to that market share. Uh, You know, and with Russia, um, you know, we knew the Russians were doing this. And that's one of the reasons we created Space Force. But nobody really wanted to take it seriously. And now we're in in a position where Russia's testing systems like the hypersonic missile in combat 
Russia in November did an anti-satellite weapons test that almost blew up the International Space Station, which was a signal to America. If you push us too hard, we'll be able to target your satellites and we will blow them out of the sky before you can even get your space boots on and and respond. And so, you know, we're now looking at these kind of Sputnik moments and nobody really cares. And so I don't mean to be a pessimist and I'm really not. And in fact, you know, in my book at the end, I, I offer several solutions to the problem. But and this is where my critique of our society and our current elite come into play is that, you know, we're just not in the same place we were in 1957, where a sizable portion of ordinary Americans, I'm not just talking about people who work in sort of foreign policy, but like like ordinary people, car salesmen, bankers, you know, local lawyers, teachers were like, hey, this is not cool that they're doing this in Russia, in the Soviet Union. We better respond. That kind of thing is gone. Uh, We haven't had that backlash yet. My concern is we are so decadent and we have such a corrupt media that's not telling the story properly and alerting people. And people are so numb to the constant fear and paranoia of the media um, that it's going to take a space Pearl Harbor for us to wake up to this threat and do something about it. And by then it may be too late. That's my concern. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It is kind of like, in a sense, it's like terrorism where you need to be correct 100% of the time and they right. only need to be correct 1% of the time. It's the destabilize. Like North Korea can get, well, I'm, well, I want to make a comment earlier, you know, it's not actually hypersonic. That's like, right. that's like the Soviet Union looking at Hiroshima and being like, it actually right. wasn't primarily fissile. It was more of a right. dirty bomb and them going, we don't have it. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, right. you know, right. actually, uh, and like, you know, yeah. Lee Harvey and like, why don't we have it? Yeah, yeah. And why don't we have it? Because the amount of money and time we have spent at the government level researching this project, hypersonic capabilities, we should have had it by now. I mean, it took us about a decade to get nukes, yeah. and that was all of government. And it's for some reason a much less advanced system, less destructive than nukes, uh, hypersonic. We've spent 30 years and billions of dollars investigating it. And we've never built it. We've never been able to build it. And now in China, they're having artificial intelligence design their new hypersonic weapon systems. I mean, they're now going light years beyond what we can do. And they've already got working systems in the real world. We don't even have them in the real world yet. We're still thinking about it. We're in the conceptual stage. Uh, you know. And so this is just, it's, it's madness that here we have uh, almost a trillion dollars we're spending every year on what's supposedly the largest defense establishment in the world, you know, supposedly the number one military in the world. And yet on these critical issues, we're not even taking the field. And then when the other side does, we poo-poo it and go, ha ha, that's not really, it wasn't as destructive. And it's like, well, wait a second, they're actually having actual working systems and maybe it wasn't the most destructive strike, but from that strike, they can then take real world data and you know, apply it to next generation systems and leapfrog us that way where we're still conceptualizing it on the drawing board. It's, uh, Brandon Weicker getting fired up. I love it. It's, but no, but, re- but really it is. It's, um, the, the thing about artificial intelligence, this is, I remember thinking about this in like middle, not middle high school when I read, uh, uh, Singularity is nearby Ray Kurzweil. Right. I was thinking about it in terms of like biotechnology, but you can really apply it to anything. What's the huge thing you point out in your book? Um, you know, I want to be an astronaut versus I want to be a YouTuber. Right. It's, it's, it's raising the generation to be into STEM. Once you get a computer that can do what a human does, you don't need to worry about raising the population. You just copy right. and paste that thing. It runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right. and you can get whatever you want. Um, Mr. Weikert, 
you're going to monologue and tell them where to get your yeah. book as I use the restroom because that's what I do every podcast. Tell them where to get it. Uh, the book in question, Winning Space, is available at any and all online retailers. You can probably also find it at your local bookstore, and I highly recommend if you can, please go to your local independent bookstore. Since COVID, they've taken a hit, and we really want to try to preserve those because while I love the big book chains and they're very good to me professionally, uh, we have to also protect our small businesses any way we can. That is a value that should be uh, uh, preached and uh, furthered every generation. So do your part. And if you can go to your local bookstore and get winning space, you will find in winning space, not just a problem that I've identified and a lot of complaining about it, uh, but there's actual working solutions. And I have a, a very positive outlook on our future as a country and a society and a species. If my Pretty simple solutions are adopted in the next eight to 10 years. If not, we are looking at a Chinese, at least Chinese dominated world, uh, possibly a world war breaking out in between that time frame between now and 2049, uh, with this decade being the decade uh, of concern. And so one thing I think is critical is being able to spend, for instance, a minimum of a trillion dollars uh, across the board federally, uh, partnering with private uh, high tech uh, research and development. That's a critical thing that we used to do during the Cold War. It's how we had the computer revolution, the telecommunications revolution, uh, the internet revolution. And we stopped doing that pretty much with the Gingrich revolution in the 1994. I'm a supporter of Newt Gingrich, of course, the contract with America was brilliant, but but his one failing was in allowing for Congress to work with the Clinton administration to cut that R&D funding at a critical moment. Yes, the Soviet Union had collapsed, but the Chinese were just getting started uh, in building out their war machine and their high-tech industry. Do you, um, thank you for that. Yeah. You think from my, and earlier when, when you said, uh, when you said you're not a pessimist, I don't mean that when I say you're a pessimist. I say when I have on the Delta Force guys and they talk about how brutal things are going to be if society collapses, Yeah, I call them a pessimist in that they're realistic. I'm an right. optimist in that I have, yes. to, I have to take devil's advocate. I have to find the silver yes. lining. No part of me doubts when Dale Comstock tells me about you know, how hard it is to take on you know, 10 individuals by yourself when you're out of ammo and you haven't slept. I don't doubt that. I'm, I have to take it from my point of view. So no, 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 you're a realist. Um, but you know, I've thought about this a lot again, and it admitted I'm 31 with a biology degree in a chair in Maryland, and I have no expertise in any of this, but I've often thought, do you maybe have to adapt with the times and understand that, like you said, you know, 1957, that was maybe a bad example because the, the average American actually did know about Sputnik. They really did. They really did. That and was it scared that, him. And it scared yeah. him. So that maybe wasn't the best uh, example by me. Um, but that being said, and right now, it's not that people are necessarily scared about Sputnik or not scared. They don't know that a Sputnik happened. Right. So it's not even that they're for or against it, that they're rah-rah America or that they're this is good. They don't know what happened. So I wonder, I wonder if you need to speak. On one side, you have you have 9-11. That, hmm. I mean, you know, project for a new American century, absent a new 9-11, which is where all the conspiracies go. But right. you have these big things where you can, you can 
let's let's wind that I was born in 1990, so I don't remember. But I can probably imagine that you go back to 93 and the World Trade Center happens. I've had on the FBI guys that were like involved with the raids to go get those guys. Mm-hmm. Okay. You have Chatter, you have UBL, you have the USS Cole. All right, you know, it's still there, but we're America, you know. Bill Clinton just right. balanced the budget. We're America. Right. And then 9-11 happens. And you have this sort of clarity. Yeah. All of a sudden, tunnel vision. Uh, you stop worrying about everything right. else. Here right. we are. We're doing this now. And it's terrible that that happens. So it's either going to be, you, you say space for Pearl, Pearl, Pearl Harbor. I would just say it's a space 9-11. As like, that's what I remember. You have right. that. But optimally, we wouldn't have that. I wonder if you could sort of facilitate a like a public yearning that would lead to space dominance right. in like a more, for lack of a better word, pop culture way. We got to yes. get to Mars. We got to get to, right. you know, we got to send the first female to the moon, whatever we got to right. cover it up as, but we still got to, does that make sense? Yeah. And that's why, you know, I spent so much time in the back half of the book talking about Elon Musk and talking about, because yeah. he really gets people imagination going. Absolutely. This is why I talked about how NASA needs to up its game because there was a time that there was a bipartisan consensus. In fact, if you, if you, if you've, there's a great show that I've recently gotten into by one of my favorite uh, TV writers, Ronald D. Moore, uh, who did the Battlestar Galactica series uh, in the, uh, in the not in the early two thousands. But basically um, it's called, um, for all mankind, and it's an alternate history. Yeah, what if, they got the sea what dragon the at Soviets, the end of it. Yeah. yeah, what if the Soviets went to the moon before the Americans? Well, one of the things that I love, and it's very much true, is at the time in the real history, uh, when Sputnik happened, when Yuri Gagarin became the first man, a, a cosmonaut, a Soviet cosmonaut, not an American astronaut, to go into orbit, uh, there was consternation and fear and loathing from both parties in Congress demanding that, hey, NASA better step up its game and get to the moon at the very least. And so um, my my hope is that at some point, we're going to be looking out across the Pacific in this case and seeing China. China's going to get to the moon in the next four years yeah. with people. That's That's a given. And they've already said their goal is not to return. They're going to stay up there. And they're going to bring the Russians with them. And so in the next four to six years, you're going to have Chinese uh, taikonauts, probably with Russian cosmonauts, dominating the moon, or at least getting up there. My hope is that that puts the fear of God into enough people that that, coupled with their interest and intrigue in Elon Musk and what he's doing, sort of congeals, and that gives us the spark that we need to push ourselves ahead. And that may fundamentally, over time, shift the culture and the society back to the way it was when JFK gave his brilliant moonshot speech at Rice University in 1962. Remember, JFK was a senator before he was the president. And when he was a senator, he was a skeptic of NASA. He was very critical of Eisenhower uh, for trying to put any resources into space because he thought it was basically a big desert. Who cared? Um, And just a few years later, after becoming president, he saw how it not only inspired the American people, how it gave him political capital whenever he talked about it, but also he understood the real strategic threat of losing space, in that case, to the Soviets. But now today, the same argument could and should be made, you know, what happens when we lose space to the Chinese? 
the, by the way, the Chinese who think about space even more strategically than even the Soviets did back in the Cold War, who have since the beginning of their space program talked about space as the high ground, have analogized it, how they've talked about Yi Pijian, who's the head of China's civilian, supposedly civilian moon program back in 2018, was quoted in the Wall Street Journal, openly telling Western journalists that, hey, we in China view space as an ocean. We view the moon as the South China Sea, and we view Mars as the Philippines. Well, if you know what China's doing in the South China Sea and what they're doing against the Philippines and how they're building illegal uh, man-made islands as sort of weapons emplacements to threaten their neighbors and to extend their zone of control illegally beyond uh, what it should be, and you apply that to space, you go, my goodness, they're, they're telling us what they're going to do, the way that Mussolini and Hitler used to tell us what they were going to do. They're being open about their intentions. They mean to dominate space. They mean to dominate it for their military, because that's the high ground. And they also mean to dominate it because that is where the next economy is. You're talking about space mining. You're talking about a minimum of a trillion dollar asteroid and lunar mining industry of rare earth minerals, which are all there. China today on earth has been dominating the rare earth minerals, which are essential for building new technologies. Any technology built 1970 onward, you need to have rare earth minerals, lithium, cobalt, things like that. Well, that's an abundance at the asteroid belt. That's an abundance uh, on the moon. It's also another reason I talk about this in my book. China has such a heavy investment in nuclear fusion research mm-hmm. and development because while deuterium tritium is not the best reaction to use for nuclear fusion, that's really the only one we can use on Earth because that's what there's an abundance of. Uh, I believe it's I think it's deuterium, get rid of tritium and put helium three, you now have a stable, non-radioactive, limitless source of energy, clean energy. Uh, That isotope helium three is found in abundance in the regolith, the, the moon dust. And the Chinese explicitly talk about collecting samples with their current lunar rover, bringing it back to Earth to study the makeup. And if there is enough helium three, it's easily accessible up there to humans, then they will with that potential moon base that they could have within the next four years on the south side of the moon, the southern pole of the moon, they will then begin mining operations there to harvest that before anybody else can to monopolize these new industries and technologies, which set aside the military threat, as we talked about with America, if you have a robust, dynamic, innovative economy, you now will also by default eventually build out a very innovative, dynamic, dominant uh, war machine on Earth, which is why China's looking at rare Earths, why they're looking at space mining. So it's not even just the direct military application of, hey, we have the high ground. It's now also we're like a like you're like a Bedouin uh, staking out all the watering holes in the desert. You are now staking out all of the st- easily accessible, economically viable uh, uh, sources of mining uh, in space before the Americans and their friends can even tie on their space boots. And that's where we're headed right now. And so all of these things, I think. Um, not only get sort of the investing community, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with Silicon Valley people over the last five years. I've done many tech expos uh, for them uh, on this issue. Uh, but you're now also talking about getting um, you know, businesses involved, which is going to pique the entrepreneurial spirit of many Americans. You're now also piquing the scientific field because there's obviously some natural overlap between that business opportunity and the ability to get people out to do scientific research. Uh, and so that's sort of the slow motion role about how you could get wider American society 
interested in space. But that's long term. I think you also have to really scare the bejesus side of people and say, hey, look, remember 9-11? Some people don't. Remember 9-11? Remember what happened? If we don't avoid another 9-11 in space or another space Pearl Harbor or another Pearl Harbor in space, it's going to not only trigger a world war that we will probably lose at the outset at least, but it could also end modern society as we understand it because we're so reliant on it. So let's invest the capabilities, the money, and the personnel into building out the defenses we need to make our satellites more survivable and then to go from there and to make America a truly spacefaring dominant people. Why not? And you know that's, I think, where we're headed. It's just a question of can we bring the American people along the way the Chinese regime is bringing their people along without that kind of catalyzing surprise attack. Because if the surprise attack happens, we go from being left of boom, which is where you want to be, to being right of boom. Once you're right of boom, you're reacting. And when you're reacting in a space war, you are increasingly losing more and more and more capabilities. And at that point, that's not the position to be in. And the reason I don't use the 9-11 analogy as much is because ultimately 9-11 was a terrorist attack that was predicated on instilling more fear than anything else. That fear was designed to cloud the judgment of the Americans and to inspire an, a pan-Islamic revolution in the Islamic world against American-backed autocrats. It didn't work ultimately. They targeted in America the World Trade Center uh, and civilian airliners, which were soft targets. Yeah. They went after the Pentagon, but ultimately the Pentagon did not have that attack, did not have the kind of effect yeah. it was intended to, the way that the World Trade Center attacks did. But in the Pearl Harbor Pearl attack, Harbor was, the objective uh, yeah. was primarily a military objective designed to prevent the Americans from being able to project power against Japan in the Pacific. Similarly, I think a Russian or Chinese attack on our satellites would initially be about targeting those known military systems to prevent our military from projecting power either into Europe against Russia or into the Indo-Pacific against China. Now, over time, as we retaliate to the best of our ability in space and elsewhere, I am sure that the attacks would escalate beyond the military realm into civilian targets. And at that point, you could then say we have a, a, a space 9-11. But I believe the initial targets, especially of Russia and China, would try to be confined to military targets first. And so things like the wideband global SATCOM constellation, MUOS constellation, our NC3 nuclear command control and communication satellites to degrade any ability of America to launch and coordinate nuclear strikes. Uh, those would be the first, tar- our keyhole satellites, surveillance satellites, those would be the first targets of any Russian or Chinese attack in space, which is why I try to keep it to the Pearl Harbor analogy. Uh, but over time, yes, they would escalate if they couldn't defeat us outright with that. They would escalate, I believe, to civilian attacks to try to confuse and, and harry the American people at home so that we're too busy rebuilding and we don't have time to send forces and can't send forces to go fight overseas. As the Delta Force guys say, run the situation, don't let the situation run you. Right. Keep, it, keep them on the back foot, even if you don't entirely know what you're right. doing keep them on the right which is certainly what china and russia are attempting to do you know we have very smart enemies um and and uh i would argue these enemies particularly china are actually some of the smartest we've gone up against because they've they've studied us from afar so like you know if i may the the sidebar here it's related um there are reports now coming out that it sounds an awful lot like xi jinping in beijing encouraged vladimir putin to do his attack on ukraine um, and there's a Newsweek article from last Friday 
uh, in which uh, there's basically there's been this high ranking Russian FSB operative who's been leaking sensitive Russian classified intelligence to a Ukrainian human rights group uh, for the last month. And Bellingcat, which is a private, very well-respected private intelligence firm in the United States and Europe, has corroborated that this is a real leaker. We don't know who it is because he doesn't want to be revealed because Putin will have him killed. Um, But he revealed that in December and November of last year, as Russia was building up its forces across from Ukraine, Xi Jinping had a, a private uh, meeting with Putin in which he outlined China's intention and plan to invade Taiwan in the fall of 2022. And uh, the Russian intelligence knew this, and this Russian intelligence leaker leaked it to the West. And this was a Newsweek story last week. Um, and I believe this is accurate. And I believe what what Putin uh, or what Xi was trying to get Putin to do was to say, hey, invade or hit Ukraine before we hit Taiwan. Do it now. The Americans are distracted. I think there was an ulterior motive. I think Xi was trying to see, A, he was trying to bleed Russia and the United States dry, getting them to fight each other. So we're too distracted for to do anything against Taiwan when, when or any, uh, against China when they go against Taiwan. But also I think Xi Jinping was trying to see what would the West do in a similar situation. And we now know that the West has basically thrown everything but the kitchen sink at Russia. We have nuked their economy. We have gone after their elite. We have basically in 15 days sent Russia back economically and politically 30 years. Um, And China's taking notes and they're learning, okay, this is what the Americans are going to try to do to us if we go into Taiwan, and they're adapting. This is exactly what they did after Desert Storm in 1991. They looked and they saw the Americans cut through the fourth, what was at that time, the fourth largest military, Saddam's military in 1991 in the world that had the same kind of technology, the Soviet era military technology that the Chinese had. And they saw how America's military, that highly technological, interoperable, connected military, uh, cut through the fourth largest army like butter in record time. And so the Chinese said, okay, we got to go back to the drawing board. Thankfully, they didn't do it to us. We better reinvigorate our military now, adapt it to whatever the Americans are going to do. And then four or five years later, the Taiwan Strait crisis happened in which Clinton sent two aircraft carriers to stop what looked like to be an inevitable Chinese invasion of Taiwan, humiliated Beijing in the process. And so China, and this is the basis of unrestricted warfare, that document that was written by two senior Chinese colonels. Those two senior Chinese colonels were actively leading uh, across the strait. Uh, the wargaming exercises that China started doing as soon as those American aircraft carriers sailed through. And they looked and they said, okay, if the Americans were to escalate beyond just sailing carriers through and to actually attack us, what could we in China do? And uh uh-oh, in 1996, they realized we can't do anything to stop two carriers from completely eviscerating China unless we want to go nuclear. So the For the next decade, they wrote this asymmetrical warfare campaign about how they can fight and win against the Americans, judging their experience and going off of the example that America put on in Desert Storm and the the Taiwan Strait crisis. Something similar is going on with China watching Russia and America go at it over Ukraine. They're learning without having to lose any people or equipment. And this is the scary thing, because now those lessons learned are going to be applied very soon. And the Americans cannot do 
the same or have the same effectiveness with economic sanctions that they've had with Russia against China, which is the second largest economy in GDP terms, is highly integrated into the world. And oh, by the way, it looks like now Washington is going to try to do the mother of all deals with China to get them to help us contain Russia, which is a born to lose plan. But this is where our elite are taking us. And so China is learning from history and they're applying the new technologies very methodically and innovatively into creating a strategy that will ultimately, they think, defeat the Americans without really having to fight us in a fair fight. So China doing this is they're, although brilliant, see what happens, will one, bleed each other dry, right? It's like the idea of the cat having the two fighting fish fight each other. And then when they're tired, right. the cat eats them and the cat is China. Right. Now there is that, that obviously it hasn't, knock on wood, hasn't escalated yet to a war that dries us all. Um, but they do get to see it, right? It's like a vaccination. They're, they get to see an inoculation. How does this happen? That's right. Is there a drawback, though, in that in that you are now, the whole world is sort, sort of prepped for this now. There's this like mass, again, just me playing the, the opposing side of your argument. Is there a negative to that for China? Oh, yeah. That, that the whole world, we're in this super primed, you have people right. just screaming, you know, no fly zone that, two months ago would have never called for a bullet to right. be shot. Has the world right. become more defensive and toxic? It has. To it, it, it has. Unfortunately, all of that rage, understandably, but unfortunately is directed at Moscow and not Beijing. And yeah. so my problem is, you know, you can get the Europeans to go after Moscow. Can you get them to go after Beijing? I don't think so. First of all, they're too far away. Second of all, Beijing is far too economically integrated. And third of all, we're looking now at India, which we need. Biden is threatening to sanction because they won't abandon their relationship with Russia. And now you've got India meeting with their enemy in Beijing saying, okay, if the Americans are going to come after us because we're still doing these defense deals with Russia, why don't Russia, India, and Beijing get together and create an alternative economic system in that region to circumvent American sanctions or any potential American sanctions against us? And so now you have this very strange you know, moment where an essential ally against China is actually working with China because they're so angry that we're threatening to go after them about their relationship with Russia. And I'm talking about India, um, which I'm a big proponent of India. We need India. We shouldn't be sanctioning. We shouldn't even be thinking about yeah, sanctioning. what the hell? Uh, but this is Biden on display, right? This is, this is classic Biden. Um, and so um, the problem is, yes, that does highlight weaknesses and that does, it has actually made China, I think, a little gun shy because, I mean, Russia is struggling. And so had it been a quick lightning war for Russia, as was planned, I think China would have been more interested in doing Taiwan. But we know that Xi, and maybe this is just, you know, propaganda to try to distract us and make us, you know, get into a false sense of security. But we do know that Xi apparently has since kicked back those plans to invade Taiwan from fall of this year to an indefinite time period in the future. Uh, I think that's partly because Russia has struggled. And that was a much more straightforward campaign for Russia going into Ukraine, which was connected by land, porous land border, a flat land. Russia had a lot of tanks, had a lot of mobility, at least on paper, and a lot of overwhelming power, and they still struggle. Um, whereas an amphibious landing for China on Taiwan is very difficult, even under the best of circumstances. Any amphibious landing for anybody is. Uh, and so, you know, I think the issue that China's looking at is can we actually do this without humiliating ourselves? 
And that's not even with the Americans supplying Taiwan or with whatever Taiwanese resistance quotient there would be. Can we do this without looking bad and without weakening our position in the world system the way Russia weakened its position? And so I think that that is a downside that has helped us is that Beijing is getting gun shy for now, at least. But the more they build up, you know, and the more that the more time passes between then and whatever they want to do this. Uh, the more likely that they're going to try it and the more likely they're going to go after our space systems, the more likely they're going to go after us in cyber, which are the areas of real weakness for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's not if, but when it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's right. definitely better to have them kick it down the road. Right. Cause you can always just keep in some ways, but by then they should have a greater amphibious landing. They might be more. Cause they're not going to abandon. Right. They're not going to abandon their uh, ambition because this is for them a matter of survival regime survival. They always have said that Taiwan is the breakaway province. I know I I went to school with a guy from China. I went to college with a guy from China who was one of the princelings. And he was very reasonable, very, very liberal. Uh, But the one area that the two areas he was fanatical about was, A, we know for a fact America blew up our embassy in Belgrade in the 90s purposely. And B, which it wasn't the case. And B, you know, how would you Americans feel if if Britain or Russia or France tried to get involved in your civil war and help the South? You would have never you would have risked going to war with them before. We And that's the same way we in China view the Taiwan issue. This is a matter of national pride and emotion. You'll never be able to get us to abandon that no matter who's the leader. And so, you know, I. I they're never going to abandon this ambition, whether they can do it or not is another issue. But the longer that we go forward in time, particularly in this decade, the more likely they will have capabilities, I think, not less likely to actually achieve some degree of victory in a Taiwanese invasion scenario. So if anything, it would have been more conducive for us today had the invasion happened this fall as opposed to three or four falls from now, because China's still not quite yet ready for showtime. Like like space is a quote unquote simple thing in that it's it's kind of one area one crossroads one linkage that you need to hit and you can have a cascading effect on the rest of the military mm-hmm. this is why i i kind of i know most people roll their eyes and i i just don't let it go but it makes me think i mean it really does make me think if you're china and you are war gaming this and you're observing the united states i mean is is president biden competent or is this all intentional? And is it intentional? And I don't. I know we just got off of four years of saying Trump's a Russian agent, and that was stupid. And I, I could very well be that guy right now. But something about all this seems intentional. I don't. I don't. I don't think that our leadership is necessarily great. I don't think they're right. stupid. I think they can be out of touch. I think they can. I think be they arrogant. can be stupid, but sure. Yeah. But I don't think they're consistently destroying yeah. the u.s economy embarrassing us militarily it doesn't it just doesn't right i don't know it so, doesn't yeah. it doesn't just seem so like my it. my article from last night that they just posted this morning at the age of times did biden just escalate in ukraine is all about his recent bizarre commentary uh in poland 
this weekend in which he called Putin a war criminal and insisted there will be criminal, you know, legal ramifications for that declaration or that label. Then he followed that on with a meeting with the 82nd Airborne that was sitting in Poland, the U.S. Army, and which he said, uh, when you get to Ukraine, you will see what I'm talking about. And then he followed that on an hour or two later with a speech with the Polish... Putin can't stay in power. So you've got three in one day, these claims. And I just wrote about this. You know, did he just escalate? Does the Kremlin realize he's the gaff master? And these all could have just been sort of outbursts on his part. And oh, by the way, were they really outbursts or was Biden signaling that he did not want de-escalation to occur? Because up until that speech, beginning Wednesday or Thursday of this last week, Putin's military came out and said, we're reshifting our focus away from Western Ukraine and trying to take out Kiev and the government there uh, and reshifting our focus to just pacifying Eastern Ukraine, which we hold now, uh, which signaled de-escalation. You had Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, you know, who came out around the same time and said, yet again, we are amenable to meeting with Putin and talking about basically letting him have Eastern Ukraine so long as we can keep the West and sort of neutralizing Ukraine as a conflict zone and moving on from there. Um, And that's when Biden boards Air Force One and goes to Poland and says those three things, all three of which were going to have, the only effect they were going to have was to harden Putin's position and to ensure that Putin doubled down and did not de-escalate anytime soon. And so my question in this article is, A, was it a sign of early onset dementia? I think he's got dimensions some level probably yeah. um but that doesn't mean that he's totally lacking agency uh and you know there are moments of lucidity and we do know that putin or that biden is surrounded by hawks on on russia who think that the russia gate thing is 100 percent true and that hillary clinton and the democrats lost 2016 because of a russia meddling in the election to get trump who was a russian agent supposedly in office uh and we know he's surrounded by hawks so was he voicing the opinion of either himself as president or very important people around him who want to see this ukraine thing escalate and continue on to bleed russia dry um and my concern is that he did this purposely and that zelensky and putin both looked to looked at the time to be going off the off ramps and maybe de-escalating uh and now he's put everybody in a position Biden has where they can't de-escalate anytime soon. Um, And so, you know, I don't know for sure, but it's certainly something to consider given what we know about Biden and what we know about the people around him. They are hawks on Russia. And look, I don't support what Russia's done. I might be going on with Steve Bannon tomorrow to kind of debate him on how, you know, he thinks Putin is, you know, this great defender of Western civilization. I don't. I think Putin is an enemy of the West. Uh, And I don't support anything he's done in Ukraine. And I think we should be giving supplies and ammunition to the Ukrainians, but not beyond that. We should not be doing no-fly zones. We should not be sending U.S. troops in to fight alongside Ukraine, that this is a Ukrainian issue. Um, And so I I don't know if he was escalating purposely or by accident. And either way, it's very scary uh, on Biden's part. And and frankly, he, he really now needs to be removed, I think, Biden, that we really now need to be talking about impeachment and possible 25th Amendment you know, invocation to get him out because either way, whether it was him going rogue because he just wants to see an escalation because he hates Putin, or if it was him having a senile moment, um, 
Either way, it's very dangerous because this could escalate very easily in the next couple of weeks into nuclear war. Um, you cannot put Putin in that kind of a corner. And certainly Putin helped to put himself there stupidly. Um, but the last thing we want is the American president waiting in when it looked like there might have been a chance at de-escalation, you know, doing what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so let's play. I'll play. I'll now play devil's advocate to my devil's advocate. Maybe I, I tend to think Biden has dementia, and I don't mean that in any sort of like funny sense. I just right. use no, that. I, and, yes, and, and, and I know you don't either. I'm not saying you, that's what you're saying. I also know that he is a gaffe machine. You know, Trump. Right. Trump. Uh, Trump had mean tweets. I get it. You know, uh, Obama stuttered a lot. Uh, uh, Bush. Right. You know, said you know miss on don't don't misunderstand. You know, like sure. So I'm also like okay with like they all have their things that are superficial and they're easy for mm-hmm. lowbrow, low-hanging fruit attacks on them. So sure, we'll take that into consideration, the gaff machine, whatever. Um, could it be more so a mixture of gaffs and dementia? And is it through osmosis, the people he's around that are hawkish? It might be that. But, and I don't agree with this at all, and I don't, again, I don't support Biden or necessarily think he's some genius tactician, but I'll, for the mental exercise, I'll try it out. Maybe we're viewing this as, as you and I, we, the, the military elite, are viewing this the same way that you and I are right now, as this was a sort of dry run for China, and they're looking at what are the outcomes. So I'm G, and I'm looking at it, and I'm going, okay, a couple of weeks of bloodthirsty, uh, of, or, of slaughter, of bloodshed, the whole world's going to change their profile pictures. But eventually what happens is they do get to an off-ramp, and they go, you can have this, but we'll end here, and that's that. That doesn't look too bad if I'm China. I'm going, okay, a couple of weeks of people sending mean tweets about China, but then we can take Taiwan. Maybe the purpose is, maybe there's a tactical move to going in there and going, uh-uh, uh-uh, full-on war. Maybe what mm-hmm. that is is a signal to China and not necessarily. To, and again, I don't believe that at all, and I don't support Biden at all, but I have to try to stretch uh, no, my, there's certainly my There's certainly a lot going on behind the scenes that nobody's yeah. privy to except those people there. Um so it's possible, but my whole thing is this is a very irresponsible way when you're dealing with a nuclear power led by a guy like Putin who is against the wall, who is getting desperate, and who I think might have been looking for an off ramp this last week. And then Save you face. have Biden, you have Biden coming in and basically kind of nuking that whole possibility. Um, you know, and I, I don't know where we go from here. I don't want to see Ukraine conquered and I don't want to see Ukraine even split in half. But um, if the choice is between the Russian speaking Eastern side, just sort of going with Russia uh, and leaving the pro-Western, pro-American Western side of Ukraine free, I think that's something we should contemplate, especially if it avoids nuclear war. Um, and, and that, that is something we should, we should contemplate. And, and over time, you know, Russia is going to get weaker, um, over time, I think. And so over time, Russia may never be able to do something like this again. Um, and we've certainly, the Ukrainians have done a bang up job of, of slowing the Russian advance down. Um, I'm hearing from people that on the ground that, you know, Russian troops are now deserting en masse and they're putting on women's clothing and trying to basically, you know, hide and run away. Um, and so over time, that's going to have negative impacts for the Russian fighting capability. Um, so, you know, I just, it doesn't really make sense to me why Biden would have come out and said Putin must go. 
especially because it might not be the worst thing to have a leader that's been so humiliated in Moscow that he's really weaker now and he can't be as aggressive over time as he'd like to be with with our side. Um, so I just, you know, I just think it was a very kind of silly, idiotic, whether intentional or not. And if it wasn't intentional, it's even scarier. Um you know, and we need to, I think, be seriously considering, I mean, if they impeach Trump for far less, I mean, we could be a guy on our side, like Biden could have his finger on the button and not know what's going on. And so probably doesn't know what's going on. And so we need to be talking about 25th Amendment. We need to be talking about, hey, maybe it's time, unfortunately, as scary as it sounds for right now, at least the president Kamala Harris, because at least she's not senile. She's not going out and, you know, poking the bear when it's already so riled up so yeah yeah you have a guy like putin some hyper alpha guy right who is right you know, russian to the core wants you know hate the fall of the soviet union was the most disastrous thing of his life he's getting up there in years and we've completely sanctioned him into a wall as probably should have he can't just go invade ukraine right however there's also the sort of like real politic where it's like hey guys this rabid bear with nuclear weapons is kind of backing down in a weird way, saving face because they still get to leave with something. And all of a sudden we're going in there and just sh- you're shaking the cage. Right. We're like, we're like, do something, bitch, do something. It's right, like, right. Dude, right. Dude. And, and like, sure. Maybe you are looking down the road and showing China that will intimidate you. If we don't get past this, there will be no China conflict to be concerned about. Right. There'll be no down the road. There'll be a radioactive ember. Right. Right. I don't know, man. Oh, you're cooking my head. So I have to be an optimist. This is what my mom said last week. My mom watches all my episodes, and she was like, I'm glad you asked Mr. Weicker at the end of the episode for some positive news. She was like, I was doom and gloomed. And I was like, yeah, but that's, that's, you know, that's the, that's the tough love medicine that you don't want. Um, you good to do like it's three forty three now. You want to wrap this up at like four? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. So one thing I kind of want to talk about, and this is kind of like a side thing, is, and I had never known of it before. Um, that that orbital, the sort of manned uh, like NORAD up in geosynchronous yeah. orbit. Could you go into that a little more? Because that yeah. I had I had never heard. I've know a lot of obscure Cold War things. I had yeah. never heard of that. Yeah, the, so the Manned Orbital Laboratory, MOLE, was, and um, you should look it up online because there's some wild pictures. Because basically what happened was um, there was a Cold War era program beginning in the late 50s, early 60s um, to basically, this was before we had satellites. We knew after Sputnik that space could provide a lot of advantages in surveillance and telecommunications, but we didn't have the systems yet for that unmanned kind of satellite that we have today. And so the Americans were saying, hey, we need to have surveillance from space. We need to have uh, the telecommunications capability from space. Uh, At the time, the only thing we needed to do was to build mini space stations. And so we started investing in what they were calling the Manned Orbital Laboratory, the MOLE program. And it was through the Air Force, not – it was sort of a – a parallel program with NASA. So NASA had the Gemini program. uh, the, The Air Force had the MOLE program. They had these really cool space suits. Instead, so you had the, the NASA was white and silver uh, with sort of like a, a helmet with like a closed helmet here. Uh, the Air Force had the mole program with a thinner uh, blue uh, uh, space suit with a 
concave, something like from an old 50s sci-fi movie, a concave um, a glass helmet that allowed the wearer to have full 360 view of their surroundings. It would be a combat setting they'd be in. And so basically the idea was you would use Air Force and Navy personnel to staff these space stations that would be doing surveillance for the most part, but also would amplify signals and whatnot. Uh, and it would basically uh, be a manned satellite. And over time, that would create a human-rated ecosystem in space, a military American ecosystem in space that would evolve over the course of many years into not just small manned space stations, but into a very large uh, geosynchronous-based space station that would be effectively an orbital NORAD command. In the event that a nuclear war happened, it was assumed at that time the technology was limited where the, the Soviets couldn't knock out uh, a system in geosynchronous orbit. And so you'd have this sort of multi-layered manned system, military system in space that would allow for us to have redundancy if NORAD and if the American sort of command and control system on Earth were knocked out, you would have this system in space where you would have American troops and personnel up there to kind of conduct the nuclear war with the Soviet Union uh, should those those uh, Earth-based systems and, and, and uh, command centers be knocked out. Um, it was a great idea. We actually had mole men selected and training at the same time that the NASA Gemini guys were training. Um, it was LBJ that was sort of his big program that he loved and wanted to see come to fruition. But when he decided not to run for re-election for obvious reasons, the Vietnam War being one of them, um, Nixon came in. Nixon hated LBJ out of spite, primarily. Nixon cut the mole program about six months before the first mole astronauts would go into orbit um, and shifted over to unmanned satellite. Now, those systems are far cheaper and more efficient than the manned system. But as I argued in the book, that set back the human spaceflight, the military side, hugely. We never really recovered from it. Um, had we done that, we would have been able to have not only this really cool system in orbit, but probably tripwires in orbit today. Basically, we know with NATO, the reason you put U.S. forces in Europe is not necessarily because they're going to be able to stop a Russian invasion, but because the Russians are going to be scared if they kill Americans, that might trigger a wider, more violent American military response. And the same logic would have been, from at least as I assess it, had we had those systems in orbit, had we had American military astronauts manning these 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 stations in orbit, the Russians and now Chinese might have been more reserved in their desire to attack, target and attack American space systems than they are today. Now it's all on man and they figure, yeah, the Americans might lose their cool, but they're not killing Americans. So it might keep that, that possibility of wider war just below the threshold uh, of being triggered uh, because you're not killing Americans. You're just inconveniencing the Americans. Uh, and so the mole program was the, the genesis of what would have been a larger military American human ecosystem in space that probably would have gone beyond Earth orbit. Um, and because we cut that program, we lost a lot of capabilities. In fact, in 2019, uh, the, one of my favorite groups to work with, the DIU, Defense Innovation Unit, uh, actually put out calls for uh, papers on uh, the viability of a human-rated uh, military space station. I wonder why. Um, this was largely based on my work and my book. 
Of course, I don't get credit for it, but this was largely based on what I was talking about both before and at the time. It went nowhere because when the Trump administration left, the Biden administration is very skeptical about anything resembling American space power. Uh, So we're going to be dead in the water there again. But this would have been a great time to sort of jumpstart a military American human ecosystem in space. And uh, that is sort of the mole program, the mole men. um, And it was something that we should still do today. But that was a Cold War program that was aborted in the womb. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, I was thinking kind of like how like the economy, it's like the strong economy sort of grows a military out of it. It's almost like a like a strong snowplow is the economy mm-hmm. and the banks mm-hmm. that it makes on either side of the road are the military. And it's like it's this thing that flows out of it. Maybe maybe the way to go is maybe you have Elon Musk go to Mars. It might be that the achievement of that will sort of flow out into military military gains as well i mean to be able to yeah to be able to set up like a an outpost there to get there to even come back or at least replenish it with the resources i feel like that could sort of be that snowplow where all these other things sort of flow off of it that might be how it plays out of course the problem is would elon musk be beholden to the united states or would he try to do his own thing as he indicated he would in november of 2020 would that spacex colony which spacex receives a lot of u.s tax dollars and contracts would they ultimately serve u.s interests or would they kind of try to be their own entity and that's the concern and Musk has already indicated that if he did get to Mars with a colony, it would not be according to U.S. government you know, control. It would be in accordance with either international law, sort of like how we govern Antarctica, uh, or it would be SpaceX governed, which is not something that you know, the U.S. government wants. They want it to be a U.S. entity, especially because SpaceX receives so much copious tax dollars. And so that's the only issue with relying totally on the private sector, which is why I say we need to have a public-private uh, partnership to ensure that the U.S. national interest directly is secured, preserved, and furthered, and that it doesn't just become a corporatocracy, yeah. as much as I love SpaceX and I do. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like maybe that's some like long con game is to say, to say this is going to be a SpaceX thing, not America. Well, how would America go against that? You'd be like, all right, right. Well, how much do you need for it to be an America thing? Right. I don't but know. I think there yeah. I think there is something to Musk saying it will not be a US, you know, project. It would be a you know, his project that he happens to take US tax dollars for, but it's him and he's gonna govern it as he wants it. Well, that's well and good, but um, you know, there is a national security issue here. Um, and China's coming to take Mars for China's government, not for any China private space firm. And when they get there, they're going to have Chinese political officers who are not going to let their people kind of have freedom on Mars so far away from China. They will impose Chinese rule there too. And so if you have an American colony there that SpaceX built, SpaceX needs to have U.S. military personnel with it. They need to have the protection of U.S. law, which is far more comprehensive and attractive than Chinese law. Um, They need to be able to do that. And it can't just be this sort of, you know, libertarian thing. It's got to be America. 
Yeah. It's uh, one of my other favorite things about your book is there's just this really kind of with no rationale and no fundamental explanation. There's just this sort of all of human history has been nothing but warring and up, one-upping each other with technology and securing of uh, trade lines. But when it comes to space, we're all just going to hit the peace pipe. It just, guys, right. it ends It ends with uh, altitude. It's the one thing we never figured out, how to get world right. peace. It's altitude. No. Right. No, it's going to be the same right. power posturing same thing for eternity. It's never going to stop. It's because we, it's a human nature issue. It's not a, it's, it's yeah. a, you know... It, it's a human nature thing. We, that's what we do. Yeah. And to believe otherwise is naive and foolish. And our enemies take advantage of that naivete whenever they can. Yeah. It's 2022. Russia has invaded Ukraine. We're, right. on, the, we're on the eve of World War III. China wants to take Taiwan. Cartels yeah. are destroying and raping Mexico. But guys, I mean, once we get up to the moon, we're going to shirk all of, our, all of our, our human traits. Right. Oh. If anything, it's going to exacerbate the negative sides of humanity yeah. because we're going to be vying for limited resources all the time and the best strategic positioning possible. And so, you know, it's going to get more violent, more competitive, not less. It's going to be the most raw Darwinian. It's going to uh, be the Wild West. It absolutely. Uh, on steroids. On steroids. Absolutely. Yeah. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be, yeah, walking. The scramble the for Africa. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. going to be going out there and shooting everyone. Is it an Indian or is it a fellow uh, traveler? It doesn't matter. You've, you've got your, you've got your six shooter in your wagon, right? It's pure. And it's not until like the, you, the sort of government catches up that it turns into a domesticated West. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not, that's what's going to happen. SpaceX might get there. Yeah. And then you're going to have China coming in there. And you're going to have to be comfortable also with a lot of people dying just because of exposure to natural phenomenon. Yeah. And that's another thing. Molly Hemingway a few years ago wrote a great article at The Federalist about America needs to get okay again with having astronauts die. That oh, we need yeah. to just, you know, oh, 100%. That's not be so risk averse. And this is another problem of our culture that China doesn't have. China doesn't have any human rights. They don't care. Yeah, so, you know, right. They don't care. They'll get there eventually. And so that's another issue. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would have to be something like that. It would have to be. And I also, again, in my limited, you know, I'm not a billionaire, surprisingly, is that I don't know if you could maybe throw, push deaths under the rug, under the blanket of it's SpaceX as much as you could with this is a U.S. endeavor. You know, within the U.S. endeavor, you understand that the astronauts can die. SpaceX, it'd be like, all the headlines would be about, you know, the 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 price of SpaceX stock plummeting. Mm-hmm. It's I don't know if you could do. Uh, who knows? Right. I don't know. I think you'd have to have. I don't know. Best case scenario scenario might be, and I know I know they don't have the same goals, but I think best case scenario would probably be competition within the competition. It would be Bezos sure. and Musk racing for something. Yeah. Well, that's I've written about that at the National Review. That's the best thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think what we need to understand is that the space race is here. It's more dynamic than it was in the Cold War with a lot more players, with a lot of different interests. Uh, and the threat of a space war, certainly a space Pearl Harbor, is higher than it's ever been. And in that threat, if we don't rise to the occasion, uh, we will be defeated on Earth and the United States will go from being the dominant power to being just a middle declining power 
like France or Britain were after they lost access to the new world of the, the Americas. Uh, and whoever mostly dominates and controls space at that point will be the dominant nation and power and company uh, on Earth. And we are really at risk of losing that dominance because we're at risk of losing space today, like in the next decade. And, um, you know, I just don't think that we're fully aware of it. And, and it's very scary to me. Well, we'll we'll wake up either through through Elon Musk selling it in pop culture or sure. through a Chinese Pearl Harbor. Yep. It's one of them. Or a Russian one. Or, or a Russian, Russian one. one. Either way. Or both. Either way, we're waking up out of the sleep. Do we want to wake up naturally with the sunlight or do we want to wake up by an alarm and a yeah. cold bucket of water? Either way, you can't stay in bed. And yeah. with that, Mr. Brennan Wecker, yeah. your book in the description. Everyone go grab it. I'll put all the links Thank to all you. your good stuff in there. We'd love to have you on again sometime. Absolutely, I try, absolutely. I, I want to try to find. I need you to send like send me a list of people you want to talk to, and I can see if I could put it together. I think we get sure. some badass discussions going because I, sure. you know, I like talking about stuff, but I also don't just like talking about it. I want to see. I don't have a whole lot. I got ten thousand subscribers. I want to see if I can start an acting change. Like, who do we got to talk to to start? You know, right? Because if it's just you and me, you know, yelling into the void about how America's falling behind in space. That only gets so far. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. I wonder if I've, I mean, I've interviewed a bunch of guys in the Air Force, but I've interviewed Charlie Duke, who's walked on the moon. Yeah. I mean, I wonder cool. if there are people I could start mixing together and see if there could actually get any sort of traction. Anything. Yeah. Just so I don't just sit on, because I don't want to just sit on my ass saying how we're losing space. Right. You no, know, there's Absolutely. Not, I hear you. I hear you. I'm not you. getting anything out of that. Let's do That's something. Right. Right. Mr. Throughput. White. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much yeah, for coming you. on here. Until next time, yeah. brother.